Please turn in your Bibles to this morning's scripture, Psalm 100, verses 1 through 5. If you would like to follow along using a pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 500. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 100, beginning with verse 1. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are continuing in our series through the Psalms this morning, Songs of the Shepherd King, various selected Psalms throughout the book, and we come to a unique Psalm. This is the only one specifically dedicated for the purpose of giving thanks. Now, this is not the only psalm that calls us to give thanks. You can scarcely read through the book of the Psalms without a command to give thanks to the Lord, but this one, Psalm 100, specifically dedicated to that purpose. And if that is our text's purpose, and even in a unique way, we ought to pay attention to it. So, as we study together and give thanks and see how the Lord calls us to give thanks, let's take just a moment and pray together and ask his blessing as we study. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that we can come and gather this morning and give you praise. So Lord, as we study together, we ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear and see and know you better that we might give you thanks. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. This is a quote from a columnist in the LA Times. Her name is Susan Jacques, and she writes, we do it in the shower, we do it in the car, we do it uh, under our breath at work, and when no one's home, we even do it in front of a mirror with an imaginary microphone. And some of us even do it in the rain, singing. Ballads and blues, show tunes and classics, but what separates us from the professionals like Michael Crawford and Aretha Franklin is that they sound good. (laughs) Fret not, though, as it turns out, carrying a tune isn't all that important. The experts and James Brown agree that the very act of singing, even off-key, makes us feel good. And we do this, don't we? We sing But if you're like me, and God has not given you the gift of being a talented singer, we still find ourselves doing it. Or maybe just humming, or tapping our foot, or maybe we just feel it in our souls. Because there's something musical about the way the Lord's created us. God has created people to worship. He's created us to sing. In fact, that's one of the very first things we see a person do. Adam, our first father, when he sees Eve, he breaks out into poetry, into psalms, into, into song, exclaiming, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
And let's be honest, if there's something that can make a man break out into song, it's a pretty girl. (laughs) But when we come to our text this morning, that is not the reason we're called to break out into song. We're called to sing, to come into the Lord's presence with a joyful noise because, because the Lord is God and he created us. The final verse of this short text offers some reasons to sing because of his goodness, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. We're called to give the Lord praise. And this text gives us those reasons. So we're going to look at how we're to sing, but first, we're going to look at why we should sing. How we should sing, but first, why we should sing. And I have to apologize because if you're one that likes to go in order to go verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5... We're not going to do that, because as we were reminded several weeks ago uh, by Reverend Ma, uh, the focus of the text is in the middle. The way Hebrew poetry works is it points towards the middle. The middle is the focus, so that's where we're going to begin. We're going to begin with verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. What a verse to begin with. A command, yes, for our minds to know that the Lord, he is God. But this is not just for our minds. We're called to know this, know that the Lord, he is God in the very depths of who we are. Know that the Lord, he is God. So who is this God that we're called to sing praises to? We might be able to answer it in many different ways. We might know our shorter catechism and know that he is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and he's full of wisdom and power, holiness, justice, and truth. And we know answers like that and true and good, succinct answers like those. And we can also look to ancient understandings of of deities and, and know that in the ancient Near East, they thought gods were regional beings, that when city-states or nations were at war against each other. It was really the gods who were at war. And whichever people came out on top, surely their god must have won. We, We know that's not the case. Throughout Scripture, God points out that he is Lord over all the earth. He's not limited to some regional place like that. He's Lord over all the earth. We also know that he's one god, Though he exists in Trinity, in Trinity, in unity, we know that he is three persons in one, and we wonder at this mystery. How could three persons be one? Trinity in unity, co-equal in majesty, co-equal in glory. We can know these things because he's revealed himself to be all this. But what our text has in mind here is God is the creator. The one from whom all things came into being. The one who from the very account of creation revealed himself to be the God in Trinity. Where we see the spirit hovering over the waters. And Colossians and John both tell us that Christ was the creator as well. God is the creator. He spoke and out of nothing everything came into being. Do you know God as the creator? Because all of creation cries out in recognition of its creator. When we look at creation, when we look at nature, there's order. We see a purpose and an order to it. It's not random or chaotic, but it's organized. And this testifies that the Lord is God. 
Have you also noticed in scripture whenever the Lord comes to earth that creation reacts? When God came down in the garden to walk with Adam and Eve, he came in the cool of the day. Why point this out if not to point out that creation was reacting to the Lord's presence? When Moses ascends the mountain where God will pass before him, there's an earthquake and thunderings and lightning. And centuries later, when Elijah climbs that same mountain, God speaks to him, and there's a storm and a fire. And God himself, born as a helpless babe, a star led wise men to him. And as Jesus grew up, he was on a boat with his disciples in the middle of a terrible storm, so terrible the disciples thought they were going to die. So the creator stands at the front of the boat and demands that his creation be still. And it listens. Do you know the Lord is God? Do you know him as the creator? Who is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So how is it that this sovereign, eternal, unchangeable Lord and creator of all things would then be our shepherd? Let's be honest about the Lord's choice to identify himself as our shepherd. That's one of the many ways that he identifies himself to us. But shepherds were smelly, uncultured workers. They had no honor or prestige for themselves. They were out in the fields every day feeding and watering and protecting and guiding their sheep. And these sheep, let's be honest about them too, they have no natural defenses to keep predators away. They'll scarcely walk through an open gate, even though it's painfully obvious to everyone else that's where they should go, but they won't go through it without a shepherd pointing the way. And yet, the almighty king of creation calls himself our shepherd. He doesn't just call himself that either, but he's the God who led his people in the wilderness by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. He's the God who condescended to become human, became a person with a real body, experiencing all the muck and the mire and the filth of a fallen world. Why? So that he might be our shepherd, that he could protect us, save us from our sin, save us from our own rebellion. He left all the splendor of heaven that he so rightly deserves in order to be down with his sheep in order to die on the cross and redeem his people and give them eternal life. That is the Lord. It's he who made us. Do you know him as the creator? As if that weren't enough, our psalm gives us more. Look down at verse 5 with me. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. These attributes of God are reasons for us to praise him. The Lord is good. Just pause there for a moment. The Lord is good. Can you imagine, can you fathom a God that was bad? I once had a grammar teacher explain the difference between the words good and well to me. 
So if someone asks you how you're doing, you should say you're doing well because well is an adverb that describes the action. The way she got us to remember that, she'd say, you're doing well, Superman does good. Because that's what he does, right? He stops bank robberies and he fights villains. He does good deeds. And he does them because that's who he is, right? Superman was raised with traditional uh, American rural farmland values. He stands for truth and for justice. This is who Superman is. Side note, the original artists for the Superman comics were Jewish in the 1930s at the growing height of anti-Semitism around the world and wanted to introduce a Messiah figure into American culture. But can you imagine if Superman was bad? That's a little easier to imagine, isn't it? Because there's nothing that could stop Superman. We know kryptonite, but... But if Superman wanted to take over, he could. Now, we can kind of, in some ways, contemplate how evil the devil is, but Satan's not a god. He's limited. He's not all-powerful. Even in tempting and testing Job, God limits what Satan is allowed to do. Satan has no real power or authority except that which is still permitted by God. But can you really imagine if God had created us created humans not out of love, not out of his goodness, not out of how deserving he is to be worshipped, but out of cruelty? What if he had created us to be his slaves with no free will, something that he can torment and play with as he desires? It's unthinkable. Like, we, we can't even imagine it, and if we try to, it's quite a terrifying thought. So please don't do that. <laughs> because the Lord is good. And just as creation calls out that the Lord exists, so our hearts, having eternity written upon them, testifies that the Lord is good. And yes, though sin corrupts us and corrupts all of creation, we still have some idea, as C.S. Lewis put it, of what a crooked line is only because we know what a straight line is. We know that the Lord is good. He is good and his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is good and the Lord is love. What our text has in mind here is that covenantal steadfast love. That love from a promise-making, promise-keeping God. That love of God that even when we don't love him, when we rebel and sin against him, even when we're so far from him, still he loves us. That's what steadfast is, isn't it? It's unshaking, unfailing. You can count on it. But how often do we think of the Lord in this way? Do we really think of him as unfailing and unshaking? I think the idea of, of steadfast has to do with a confidence in the outcome. Right? If we know the outcome, we can be confident and trust where we're going. And the Lord, of course, knows the outcome of all things, doesn't he? Now, recently, a controversy has flooded the world of international chess, and I'm sure you all follow that (laughs) so fervently. And the, the controversy comes because the current world champion, Magnus Carlsen, played against an American. And he lost, but that's not the cause of the controversy, even the reigning world champ for the past 10 years, loses games from time to time. 
The controversy began the next time the two played. Carlson made one move, and then he resigned, meaning he quit. He forfeited the game. Not only that, he withdrew from the whole tournament. This was several months ago, and until two weeks ago, Carlson hadn't made a single statement about the incident. He had done nothing. He simply made a move, withdrew from the game, withdrew from the tournament. Because he knew what would happen if he did that. Because in the world of chess, you make that sort of a statement, he's accusing the other of cheating. So this American player, Hans Niemann, after that incident, has been banned from chess.com because they looked into it and found that he had cheated in over 100 ranked games. Carlson knew what his actions were doing. He knew that by making that one move that people would look into it. And sure enough, he was right. He was confident of the outcome of his move. He was playing chess on a whole different level than anyone else. How much more so for the Lord who knows the outcome of all things, of every situation. So why are we surprised when we read in Scripture that God's steadfast love endures forever? Because that's the way he's been, isn't it? Or are we surprised when he sends a friend to speak a kind word to us? Or when we read something in scripture that seems to speak directly to our hearts? Because the Lord knows all and has created all things and has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And so his love is steadfast for us. And this goes hand in hand with his faithfulness too, doesn't it? His faithfulness has lasted to all generations. So why are we surprised when from the very beginning, when God promised a son who would crush the serpent's head, why are we surprised when we see that it's his son that he was sent to do just that? The Lord's faithfulness has lasted to all generations. We see it throughout scripture, and if we're honest, we see it in our own lives. See, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. So look to him. Don't be surprised by his faithfulness. Don't be surprised by his steadfast love because that's who he is. He is a good God who does good. He's a good God who shows steadfast love and faithfulness. He's the creator and he's our shepherd. This is the God who made you. This is the God who created you who from all time worked out everything that comes to pass that you would be born. Friends, that we might cry out with a psalmist from Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him. Who are we? Except that we're his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And if we know that, if we know that the Lord, he is God, what can our response be? Except to worship. Except to give thanks as the psalm calls us to. So we ought to come joyfully. Just as verse 1 calls us to. Look back with me if you will. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Notice who this command is for. It's an imperative. A command to all the earth. Remember he's not some regional deity over a part of the earth or, or over one country. He's the sovereign king. 
the almighty creator of all that exists. So who should render him praise? All the earth. We were made to worship. Everybody worships something. Even if you're not a Christian, you worship something. So if you're not a believer and you're here, consider what it is in your life that you worship. Believers, this is for you too. Consider if it's only the Lord that you worship. So what do you spend your time on? What do you spend your energy on? What do you spend your money on? What makes you shout for joy? What makes you jubilant? Where is your heart? Do you get more excited or jubilant or spend more of your time or money or emotions over sports or over music or cars or your home? Do you get more excited over those things than we do when we consider how great and awesome our creator Lord is? This command is for all the earth. Make a joyful noise. Now there's a time for everything, a time to mourn and a time to dance, as Ecclesiastes tells us. Worship for the Lord ought to be done with respect and understanding that he is great and awesome. He is the sovereign king over everything. But what joy ought we to have when we worship this God? Come with joy for what he's done for us. Because Christ, Jesus himself, we're told in Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. If Christ had joy on his way to the cross, endured it for us with joy, we should come with joy. We're not here at a funeral. We're not here to sing funeral songs. We're not weeping because Christ is in the grave. We're not in tears because Christ is still hanging on the cross. We're worshiping with joy because Christ is not on the cross. We're worshiping with joy because he's not in the grave. And those angels that met the disciples who came to the tomb, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. We're not at a funeral, folks. We're coming to, to worship the risen, conquering Lord. So I'd urge you, if you're not a believer, come and worship. Come and worship with joy. Ask for the gift of faith because a time is coming when every knee will bow and everyone will confess that Jesus is that risen, conquering Lord. And on that day, those who are with Christ will spend eternity with him. And those who are not will spend eternity apart from his peaceful presence, feeling the weight of God's wrath for eternity. And on that judgment day, you will either feel the most immense joy or the most intense dread. So when we come to worship today, we're coming to a rehearsal. We're rehearsing that joy. We're rehearsing the songs that we will sing for eternity. So it's no surprise then that verse 2 moves to call us to serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Serve the Lord with gladness. Wherever you find yourself today, whatever you, your hands find to do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you're a CEO at a Fortune 500 company, serve the Lord with gladness. Or whether you're a parent, serve the Lord by 
feeding and protecting and providing for your children. If you're a child, honor your parents as God commands. Obey them as you would the Lord. Doing these things that he's put in front of us, serve the Lord. In whatever situation he's placed you, serve him. And this is the hard one here, folks. Do all things without grumbling or complaining, right? Now we know, not every parent is a godly parent. Not every employee or employer is easy to love and to serve alongside of. Not every child obeys their parents. Serve the Lord with gladness. Do those things that he's put before you with joy. It's so easy to see only the negative. It's so easy to focus on how difficult your job is, how difficult your family is, how difficult school and work and everything else. It's so easy to get caught up in how negative those are. But work and play and serve. Worship with gladness. So how do we do this? How do we be glad? How can we serve with gladness? Because that's not always an easy thing. We have cares and concerns that are, that are with us, that are hard to put down. It's not an easy thing to do, but keep an eternal perspective. Know that with Christ, all the pain and hardship one day will be taken away. Know that whatever situation you find yourself in, it's not forever. It might be a misery or a difficulty that you'll face your whole life, but your whole life is not forever, on this earth anyway. You might have an ailment or a difficult family, a bad job, but it's not forever. If you belong to Christ, you can look at that hardship that he's put in front of you, look at it with eyes of faith. Eyes to see that that difficult person is made by that same all-loving, eternal, sovereign king of all creation, made by the same God. Our hope and our joy and our gladness doesn't come from subjective circumstances in front of us. It comes from knowing the eternal, unchangeable God who made all things. That God who came down to earth among his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. He died and rose again, conquering and defeating death. And by his sacrifice, God calls us to salvation, gives us faith, applies the work of Christ to us, and then God renders his judgment. He calls those who belong to him righteous. This is the gospel. This is the good news of who Christ Jesus is. And keeping that gospel in front of us, that eternal perspective that the Lord one day is going to put all things right, keep that in front of us, we can serve the Lord with gladness. If we keep that ever before us, keep the gospel central in our lives, if that is the resounding cry of our hearts, then we'll always be thankful for the Lord and what he's done for us. So this is why in verses 2 and 4, we're told to come into his presence. And in these verses, this is temple language. Come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Who could fathom the cost of our salvation? a difficult thing for me to do. Christ subjected himself to the miseries of life. He himself walked among us. He came and he died and he rose again. 
that's the cost of our salvation. And so come into his presence giving thanks. Give thanks for all that the Lord has done for you. Like I said, this is temple language. And so the idea here is to come into that place where God has designated for worship. And the Israelites of that day would have heard this and known that meant the temple, come into the temple gates, into the temple courts with praise. So yes, when you come to church, come with joy, come with gladness, come giving thanks. But remember who this command is for. This is for all the earth. It's not just when we're here at corporate worship on Sunday mornings. Praise him wherever you are. Whatever situation you find yourself in, at work, at home, at school, on the playground, wherever you find yourself, praise the Lord. Come into his presence with singing. Make a joyful noise. Now one of the things that has often fascinated me about the book of Job is that God never actually answers Job with the reason for why he's suffering. God gives him answers and gives him reasons. But if you look at chapters 1 and 2, Job's known the answer all along. Job says to his wife, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's known the answer all along. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I always like to wonder what would have happened if Job had just stopped right there. Good ending to the book, I think. But there's like 40 more chapters. Job insists upon an audience with the Lord. He wants to justify himself. He wants to know and answer why all his suffering has happened. And then Job's friends get in the way and they insist that it must be his fault, it must be his sin that has caused all this calamity in his, in his life. So Job wants to question God, to stand before him and justify himself. What does God do? He points out all of creation. The Lord reminds Job that he is the Lord. He asked Job if he knows how the earth was formed, if he knew all of the animals, and if he could have made all the animals, or if he can count all the stars of the sky. At the end of these chapters of questioning, Job says, I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job knows the Lord, and for him that's enough. And this is before the Lord had restored his cattle and given him a new family, new children. Job comes to a place where he knows that the Lord is God and it is he who made him. So Job continued to serve the Lord. Job came to this deep understanding of God, of who he is. So do you have this same understanding of God? Do you come to worship for yourself? Do you come hoping to get something out of it? Or do you come because you know the Lord and know what he's done for you? Worship isn't about you. If you don't like one song as much, that's okay. It's not about you. If you don't like the text of a sermon, that's okay. It's not about you. It's about God. Start to finish, worship is about the Lord. Start to finish, scripture is about the Lord, not about us. So do we know this? Do we know that the Lord is God? 
Do we know that it's he who made us? Do we know that we are his creatures and that he is the one seated on the throne and we're the ones called to come into his presence and offer him worship? And if we know all that, if we truly know the Lord, then we can come joyfully because we know who he is and we know all that he's done for us. It is he who made us. We can come and serve him with gladness because he's our shepherd. That's who the Lord is. Now in just a moment, we're going to sing a song called Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. I'm gonna close in prayer, but when we come to sing, let's sing that song. I mean sing it. But that's not just for today. Every day. Let's sing every day knowing who the Lord is and what he has done for us. So let me close in prayer, then let's make a joyful noise. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for who you are. You are a God that we cannot comprehend fully, and yet you have made yourself known to us. Lord, we trust you as the creator. We trust you as our shepherd. So Lord, help us to make a joyful noise. Change our hearts that we might continually, as the song says, sing your grace. So Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.